You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host, Chad Dundas, from BleacherReport.com. And joining us, as always, from MMA Junkie in USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, how you been? I haven't seen you for a week and a half. Lonely. That's how I've been, Chad. Lonely. That's what I assumed. Now, I took the heart-shaped locket with your picture in it that I keep around my neck to Florida with me on my family vacation, which my wife thought was weird, but kept me company. On those lonely Florida nights. I imagine you walking along the beach at sunset alone, your your jeans rolled up to mid-calf yep. so that the waves well, can lap up against Well, I didn't have to roll them your... up because I was already wearing capri pants. Oh, naturally. Every once in a while, you pause, you, you open up the locket, look at my picture, and then, you know, maybe you look, you look up at the, the, the orange-tinted sky at sunset and think, is Ben looking up at the same sky I'm looking at right now? I bet he is. We're all one under this great big sky. And then you walked on. But what about when there was just one set of footprints? <laughs> well, there would always be just one set of footprints because you're on the beach alone. You're mixing. You're you're thinking of the bookmark that I sent you. Right. Okay. In the the weathered copy of More Than a Carpenter. <laughs> right. That's it. Yeah. That's the one. Got it at the Garden of Reading down here. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, ben, it's obviously been a while since we did the co-main event podcast, I think for better and for worse. We missed a lot of news uh, that happened this past week, but also I feel like we just had more time for this news to percolate, sort of sort of uh, generate itself, kind of stretch its legs. I feel like, though, we we now face a crossroads because we had always said one of the reasons we would not move the podcast from Mondays to another day that might seem more suitable is that it would not stop the CME news curse, that if we moved it to Tuesdays, the news would just break on Wednesday, and if we moved to Wednesday, the news would just break on Thursday. And this time, big news came out uh, that first Anderson Silva is out with the gallbladder thing, then the UFC is said to be in the late stages of talks to, to sell the company, and... It seemed like this kind of stuff just again happened according to its usual usual uh, timeline. Even though we did not record a podcast, does this make the case that we should permanently move the podcast to a different day? You know, I think we're going to have to wait and see what happens on Friday, right? For all okay. for <laughs> all, all right. we know, uh, you know, a, a Chinese venture capital firm could could announce its acquisition of the UFC Friday morning. Uh, and Dana White could die in a, one of those motorcycle accidents in Maine that we've been waiting for uh, for a while since that video of him going like 100 miles an hour or whatever on his rented motorcycle. Uh, and then I assume Lorenzo Fertitta has to turn himself in for tax evasion that same day. Right. And Fabricio Verdum wakes up in the morning and realizes that he made that troll face one too many times and now it's stuck like that. Stuck like that, which feel like everyone's mother told him that's what'll happen if you make a funny face. Anyway, Ben, we're doing a sort of a all questions considered episode this week in a what will probably be a vain attempt to catch up on all the news that just wouldn't fit into the normal three round format. Uh, so we're going to try to stick to some of the big, big ticket topics of the past week. And if we if we have time near the end of the show, which <laughs> that never happens, uh, 
we'll, we'll get to some miscellaneous items. Uh, but I guess we should start here since we already talked about this during the opening. First question this week from Paul Peterson. He writes, I read on ESPN that Dana and the Fertitas are in entertaining buyers for our beloved UFC. This brings up so many questions in my mind and heart that I couldn't write them all down here. Just discuss the shit, this shit, so my anxiety level drops. Uh, boy, you said it all right there, Paul Peterson. Complicated feelings, both in our hearts and in our minds. Okay, let's start here. Let's backtrack a little bit. Let's, let's start from the beginning. Yes. Well... Let's start from before the beginning, because rumors have been swirling for some time now that the UFC owners are looking to sell. Indeed. There were reports out, I believe, last summer, or no, yes, last summer, that uh, a deal was close with the Blackstone Group, which is a, a pretty big hedge fund uh, centered out of New York, I believe. I think that the the guy who runs it lives in the apartment building that is the most expensive apartment building in America that there's there's actually a documentary about it that he appears in on Netflix that you can watch uh and that deal reportedly or I guess was rumored to have fallen through at the at the 11th hour after a deal was uh was was purportedly almost reached and then a few months ago we saw some people one of whom my colleague from uh Bleacher Report Jonathan Snowden was tweeting uh that there were rumors that maybe the UFC had another target on the hook for a sale on ongoing and that they were thinking about selling to a Chinese uh, venture capital group. I think we did. We even talk about this on the podcast a we little might bit. Have. Maybe, it all blends but, together for me. Yeah. I can't, I can't remember. Uh, but that set the stage for this past week when ESPN's Darren Rovell, who I'm still trying to figure out exactly what his calling card is here in the media, uh, passed along what interesting report. Yeah, this report was basically saying, hey, now they're in the late stages of making a sale here. That basically it's for real this time. Uh, and I think the question is not so much, you know, is there some some fire to this smoke? Because it's been persistent enough that there has to be something going on there. Uh, if the UFC just pops up, you know, I saw somewhere on Twitter, somebody saying like, Hey, I talked to Dana White and he says the UFC is absolutely not for sale. And no, I do not believe that for a second. The UFC has never even said that before. This is the first time, like one of the things that makes you think that there might be some truth to this rumor is that this is the first time I can ever recall them just flat saying the UFC is not for sale. That's not typically what they say. I believe Lorenzo Fertitta typically always says everything is for sale, <laughs> yes. which you know, when you are a, the billionaire scion of a Las Vegas casino empire, everything probably is for sale well, for and you. The casino empire itself seems to be undergoing some changes that, uh, that I believe they just purchased uh, the Palms. Uh, they're Dana kinda, White, back in at the Palms. <laughs> kind of restructuring uh, their, their casino holdings in Las Vegas. Seems like they're getting a little more interested in, in their casino businesses. Uh, we've heard for a long time that Lorenzo Fertitta would really, really like to be a part of owning an NFL team. And now it seems like the climate has just shifted in the NFL where the once like unthinkable idea that an NFL team would be based in Las Vegas now seems not so unthinkable anymore. Uh, so a lot of different moving pieces suggest that the climate is right for a UFC sale. The question that I have is when we say UFC sale, are we talking about the whole damn shop or are we talking about the way they did with Flash Entertainment in Abu Dhabi, where you're just going to sell 10% off or even sell more than 10%, but maintain a controlling stake yourself. Because then I think it'll be 
a thing that people end up fretting about an awful lot that won't really mean anything for the product. Right. There was another uh, fairly interesting report out from uh, my former Bleacher Report colleague, uh, Jeremy Botter, who's now uh, the editor, combat sports editor over at flowcombat.com. I thought thought he was Flow Gymnastics. That's the one I'm really looking forward to. Flow Flow Go-Kart Racing. He seems to be the editor of Flow Afternoon Soccer Tweets. Oh, okay. From, from where I can tell. Uh, but yeah. The, Flow taking your pants off for no good reason when there's a fight on TV. <laughs> They've been making some big moves over there at uh, Flow Combat recently. And he had a, a, a story out, I believe it was yesterday, saying just what you alluded to, that what we were looking at here, at least according to his sources, was the, the UFC parceling off another pound of flesh, so to speak, that they were going to sell you know, between 10 and 13% of the company to a Chinese venture, venture capital firm or a Chinese hedge fund, uh, sort of as a way to open up or to attempt to open up the market of mainland China to the UFC. And so that Lorenzo Fertitta, uh, could spend more time managing the, the fleet of casinos that they own in Las Vegas, which I've said before, I don't know what that entails besides going down and making sure that the doors are open in the morning. And it seems like seen- if you got that, you pretty much got it made. If people can get in, whatever. if people can get into the the premises, seems like you're doing good. There. This is why you're not a casino magnate. Now, this this right here. One of the many reasons. But you know what, Ben? Just to entertain this the fancy here for a moment, it does seem like the climate is potentially right for the UFC uh, or Zufa LLC to try to sell this thing if they wanted to. I mean, you've probably got pretty pretty good revenue numbers going right now with Conor McGregor and Ronda Rousey uh, and a couple of the big pay-per-views that you were able to do during the past calendar year. Uh, you know, you've, you've got the, the Fox deal, the Reebok deal, a lot of different stuff that, that could potentially make the, the business look attractive to investors. And then, you know, you got the, a lot of shit storms coming your way. The potential of some headaches on the horizon, uh, including that looming, uh, class action lawsuit, which crawls its way through the court systems. You've got rumblings that the Ali Act, uh, could be coming to Congress for MMA this, as, as early as tomorrow or, or this week. Uh, and you've got what, you know, a, a labor force that certainly isn't going to get any less interested in obtaining a larger slice of the pie as we begin to move forward. So, I mean, from one, it, it, in public at least, Dana White and Lorenzo Fertitta have always seemed like lifers in this shit. But you also would think that right now, if you, if one of those two guys looked at the clock, you might think, it's about to strike midnight here anytime. Like, if you, well, you, you wanted would, to. You and I would think that, wouldn't we? But then again, you and I, the the minute we realized we, our initial $2 million investment was now worth like 3 to $4 billion, we'd be like, yes, cash me out immediately so I don't have to think about any of this stuff anymore. Uh, and, you know, to quote the, the film Jackie Brown, spend the, spend the rest of my life spending. Uh, that's what we would do. That's what like normal people in this situation I think would do. But there's got to be a reason that they haven't done it already. Uh, and it's just like a completely different kind of mindset. The same reason why we're not casino magnates, because we would just figure like, oh, we already got tons of money. We're totally rich. Why do we need to get a little bit richer? Uh, and that's not the way really rich guys tend to view the world, in my experience. I think, though, the like because when I look at some of those potential issues that might be about to come up, I see a whole lot of ways that things, you know, Two or five years from now could be really, really different for the UFC. I would want to get out if I had the option right now. Not only the class action lawsuit, the the possibility of the Ali Act or some equivalent coming to MMA. Also, 
uh, we might talk about this later, you know, when the UFC instituting those new rules or at least guidelines about weight cutting on fight week, you're edging ever closer to making it absolutely impossible to claim that these guys are independent contractors. And if that happens, like, I mean, you're making them wear a uniform, you're telling them how to perform their job duties when they're not technically on the job for you. If you do end up in a situation where a court decides these guys are not independent contractors, they are employees and maybe have been employees for a long time, as we've seen with other businesses that face that kind of a ruling, then you're on the hook for millions of dollars uh, in back taxes, basically. Like, there's a lot of stuff that could happen that could drastically change your business model. I mean, a couple rulings go against you, and suddenly the stuff that the UFC has relied on as, like, the pillars of its business model could completely fall apart and the current like structure of the UFC could become untenable. And that seems like worst case scenario stuff. And maybe that they just have lawyers who have told them already, Hey, don't worry about this. And there's no chance any of this stuff is going to happen. And they're a lot more confident than I would be. Maybe I'm just a worrier, but <laughs> like if I had that opportunity to, to sell and get out and not have to deal with this stuff anymore, especially since they seem to regard it as uh, a pain in the ass a lot of the time, I might do it. I guess the reason why I guess I wouldn't do it is if I felt like I was just that much in love with being at the top of the fight game. Which is a point of view that you can totally see Dana White coming from. Like, right, right. I wonder, but he's also what, like a 9% owner? Like, right. You would want to get that. You would want to get 9% of $4 billion. You would. You but, would want that. <laughs> that would be a good thing to have. You would, but he's already super rich and you get the idea that he likes, you know, nobody's doing. Dana White looking for a fight where you get to go around and uh, pretend like it's a show where you eat at restaurants when you're not the UFC president anymore. Right. Uh, it is interesting to to wonder, to speculate, I guess, what would happen if there were a UFC sale. I mean, obviously, we give Dana White and Lorenzo Fertitta a lot of grief on this show. Some other media outlets do the same thing. I think I would argue they deserve it when we do that. And I feel like we try to give them props when they deserve it. And whenever I consider uh, the the possibility of a UFC sale, I, I wonder if it's not a deal like really wanting a new quarterback for your NFL football franchise where you don't like the guy you got, but who else is out there? Like, are you going to be happier with Ryan Fitzpatrick or Brian Hoyer? I almost feel like UFC ownership is kind of that way. Like, kind of yeah. be careful what we wish for, maybe. Like, I wonder if, if the UFC bought got bought by some kind of faceless hedge fund or something, uh if we would at some point pine for the more fast and loose days where Dana White was out there shooting from the hip telling us lies. But I think that's already that's already going away. And I think right. we've seen that. Like you don't see Dana White at the press conferences just ask answering questions. You don't see him certainly he hasn't done it for a while where he sits around and does like a half hour scrum with the media afterwards where he seems to be, you know, fairly close to an open book. And in retrospect, it's kind of amazing that he did that for as long as he did. Um, and then now, you know, the company's being sued and he, a lot of his statements that he's made when he's shooting from the hip are, uh, appearing in those, in, in that lawsuit. So it seems like the USC has said, you know what? Why don't you go out on the road and try out some hoagie joints and we'll make a show out of it. And, and, when he does show up to press conferences, it's not for very long. He disappears. When he does do post-fight interviews, it's like Fox Sports 1, and then he's going to talk to Megan O'Leavy for UFC.com, and then that's it. He's just not really as accessible anymore. And, you know, we see Dave Scholler or somebody at the press conference where they clearly do not have the power to say, like, here's what we're going to do next, or here's, you know, a, a statement about how the UFC feels about this. It's all really noncommittal. I think we're seeing what it would look like 
when those days end. It would just be that a couple steps further. And as for like how we would react to new management, I think it would depend what that management did. Because right. I think one of the things that we see from the UFC a lot of times, I think the Reebok deal is an example of that, um, is kind of an attitude of like, hey, we saved this thing. Or at least, you know, this is in their heads that they think that we saved this thing, we we bought it and pumped all this money into it when it looked like a losing proposition. We sunk all this money into it and now we get to get ours and we should get ours first. And there seems to be like a, a sense of entitlement about that from the current UFC ownership where they think like, you know what, people don't appreciate what we did for this sport. We deserve um, to be able to to get paid big time off of it now um, because we saved it and we are the reason that it's here. Maybe, you know, they inflate that narrative in their own heads uh, more than it is. But I don't know. Maybe if you brought in a new hedge fund that is just thinking about like, all right, let's make this thing as profitable as possible. It could go better or worse. I I think it would be we'd have to wait and see what kind of decisions they made. Yeah, they have the self-produced documentary films to prove right what heroes they are. Uh, yeah, I mean, unfortunately, I, I feel like there's some cause to be pessimistic that any new ownership would come in and be better in terms of labor relations just because – if you're coming in to try to to become part of a profitable business or to have a stake in the American entertainment industry or what have you, I don't think anyone is going to come in with the idea. Like you're, you're buying the UFC based on Zufa's revenue predictions and revenue history. It's hard for me to believe that anyone would come in and say, we're going to we'll, we'll buy into this business and then we'll make it a lot less profitable for us. Like right. we will split the money more more fairly. With the labor, with the laborers, with the workers. Yeah, well, I mean, I don't think, like, the only way you're going to get a more fair split for fighters is if they find a way, one way or another, either through the, through the courts or through collective action, to force that to happen. And that, I think that the fighters know that at this point, that sitting around and hoping that somebody just decides, you know what, you guys have earned it, we'll just give you more money is not going to happen. Yeah, and perhaps having someone who is not as vehemently anti-union as Lorenzo Fertitta at the top might help. Who knows? Uh, you have this, this list of questions over there? I do. All right. Uh, this one from Matthew Webb, who takes a shot right, goes straight at yours truly. Shortly after Ben Folks's speed bag segment on MMA Junkie, the MMA gods laughed out loud at Mr. Folks's UFC 198 injury-free statement. So, they did what they always do. They let us the fuck know what's up. <laughs> Down goes Anderson Silva, and now we get Brian Barbarina, the Northcut killer, versus Warley Alves. However, why not put Matt Brown versus Demian Maia or Pat Cummins versus Lil Nog? I actually want to pay for those fights. They weaken the UFC 198 main card for what reason? I do not understand the UFC's fight placement sometimes. Discuss, please. Well, first of all, it's, we'll, we'll circle back around to talking about exactly what happened here to Anderson Silva and what that means for, for the future of Anderson Silva. As far as trying to understand the fight placement, my guess would be that uh, you want to keep Matt Brown versus Demian Maia to please your broadcast partners at Fox Sports. Um, you want to give them a good fight at the top of those prelims things to, to show that you're not just giving them the leftovers. Uh, and Matt Brown versus Demian Maia is a legitimately good. Like the fact that you're arguing that it could appear on pay-per-view and should appear on pay-per-view is probably why the UFC wants to leave it on Fox and make them happy. Uh, and I think that you do help your own pay-per-view business by having the lead-in 
to the pay-per-view itself be an awesome fight. You don't want to just have a couple guys nobody's ever heard of and then you're trying to convince people to buy the fight because then the real stuff is going to happen. I think you want to have a really good fight there and that's why I would guess that they're leaving it there. Sure, yeah, you want Roger Nog versus Patrick Cummins down there to quarterback your fight pass show and you want uh, Damian Maya and Matt Brown to, to top things off on Fox Sports 1. Let me throw this out there, though. I'm just spitballing here. You want an awesome fight to kick off the main card. How about uh, you throw Johnny Lineker out there? You okay. have to wait fight John Lineker versus Rob Font because you know if John Lineker gets his way, Rob Font's getting tucked into bed early. So, or uh, Lineker will have a disastrous weight cut and fall off the scales onto his head. You know what? We're not here to talk about the negatives, okay? <laughs> okay. <laughs> here to focus on the positives, just like always. Let's talk about Anderson Silva pulled from the card at the last moment in his fight with Uriah Hall, scrapped when it was revealed just four days before UFC 198 uh, that he was going to have to have uh, gallbladder surgery. Is gallbladder surgery a thing that happens to old people? Is that what we're talking about here? I don't know much about the gallbladder. Dr. Dundas. I I have no idea. Come on, your wife's a lawyer. You should know this somehow. The gallbladder, Ben, is a small organ in the, the upper lower torso area <laughs> where This is going really well. Most that's where we eat a lot of we eat all these rocks. The rocks are stored <laughs> in the gallbladder and they help break down the food as okay. we swallow. All right. Uh you know what's well, that solves that. You know what's kind of sad though about forty one year old Anderson Silva? Uh, obviously he's a little bit long in the tooth already. We had already not really conceived of a day where Anderson Silva would be, you know, oh three and one if you count his overturned uh, win over Nick Diaz, uh, where he would be closing out his career in kind of ignoble fashion. Uh, but it, like everything that happens makes you feel like, oh, well, this could be the end, even if it's just something relatively simple like a gallbladder surgery, which he's supposed to be back training in four weeks, when you initially hear the news, you think to yourself, uh-oh, I wonder if this is it for the old man. You know, what I initially think when I hear stuff like this is... After you think, what's the gallbladder? Yeah, after I think, gallbladder? Do I have one of those too? Or do, I, do I just have one? Is there a spare? Uh, I think stuff like this and stuff like the leg break... Uh, against Chris Weidman in the rematch makes it so that he absolutely will continue fighting probably much longer than he should because he can't go out like that. And it seemed like, you know, the fight against Uriah Hall, it seemed like the UFC was trying to give him somebody that was going to be an action fight kind of in somebody would give him the a kind of fight that is not obviously a gimme, but a kind of fight that he should win and that should be interesting. Not somebody who look like they're going to murder him. And then to have to pull out of that with something weird like this, there's no way he decides, well, screw it. I'll just go retire now. Like he's absolutely going to get back in there against somebody, uh, no matter what. And you know, you could say the same thing about the weird decision against Bisping. It just seems like these, these weird incidents keep popping up for Anderson Silva that even if he were kind of on the fence about whether to retire or whether to continue, they absolutely guarantee that he will continue. Was he the favorite against Uriah Hall? A slight favorite. Headed into this fight? Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, like we say all the time, it's awfully hard to find the perfect time to walk away. Like, are you going to walk? If let's say he goes out there and beats Uriah Hall, like sail off into the sunset at that point with your wild and, and, and 
a milestone victory over Uriah Hall. Like, I would think you go out there, you beat Uriah Hall, you think, I still got it. That's right. Reborn in the game. Maybe the problem was the gallbladder all along. Who knows? Oh, shit. What if Anderson Silva becomes unfucking beatable with his gallbladder out of the way? All right. Next question from Kyle Campbell. He writes, at UFC 198, we're going to see the return of Shogun. And it's no secret at this point that he's at the very tail end of his career. Should Shogun lose this fight against Corey Anderson? It'll be his fifth loss out of his last seven fights. Do you think the UFC would part ways with him if he loses? Conversely, what do you do with Shogun if he wins? This one seems like it has all the uh, ingredients to be a kind of a sad fight, doesn't it? Because Corey Anderson, beast in 25-8, going to go out there against Shogun Hua, who, let's be honest, has been healthy enough to beast like six weeks out of the past three years. And the kind of style Corey Anderson has seems like he could just very easily grind out Shogun Hua for three sad, increasingly depressing rounds. That's kind of my vision of it. Like, if he goes out there and breaks Shogun's hip, I can't say I'll be terribly surprised. Yeah, uh, and Corey Anderson is going to be so much bigger than Shogun Hua, and he had, like you said, he has that style that just seems like it might be tailor-made to 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 just kind of make this into an ugly and... uh and painful fight for Shogun Hua. And if you look at Shogun Hua's record, like it's kind of amazing how many times in the last, say, seven fights or whatever, that they've matched him up against someone who could probably do just that to him. <clears throat> I mean, it's either a wrestler who's going to come out and, and, you know, dominate him like a Chael Sonnen, or it's an enormous light heavyweight like Alexander Gustafson or Ovin St. Prue, or, you know, a guy like Dan Henderson, which is just like, well, we're just going to do that for the hell of it. Those two guys are going to go up there and have a have a good time. Uh, so it's kind of surprising to me. And then you, in that same span, Shogun Hua's two wins are over James Tahuna and uh, Roger Nog. Uh, it's kind of surprising to me that the UFC has done Shogun Hua this way. Maybe that there's just not a lot of other options in that 205 pound division, which is pretty shallow. But it, it kind of seems like he ain't he ain't catching no Uriah Hall fights. He's catching Beeston. Twenty five eight. That's right. And you know the amazing thing to me whenever I think about Shogun Hua uh, is then I remember, oh, wait, even though Shogun Hua seems like he is ancient and broken down and has been fighting forever, he's two years younger than I am, Jad. How is it possible? How is it possible that Shogun Hua is 34 years old? Doesn't it seem like he has been around for like almost as long as you've been aware of mixed martial arts? Yes, and I would just say only... 34 years old for Shogun Hua is not 34 years old for the normal man. Yeah. Those have been 34 fairly hard-earned years for Shogun Hua. As for the question, it's hard, I guess, for me to see the UFC cutting Shogun Hua in this climate. You know where he's going. You know exactly where he's going. He's going to Dave and Buster's. To sign some damn... Connecticut. (laughs) Sign some damn autographs next to Vanderlei Silva... And then he's going to fight some money weight fight in Bellator and people are going to get like renewed excitement about it. You know that's going to happen. I bet the after parties of those Dave and Buster signings are pretty fun. You know, probably at the Best Western or the maybe the the Hilton in Uncasville if there is one. Hoist, Wanderlei, Shogun in the future. Maybe Fedor sticks his head in for a few minutes. Shamrock comes by. You think Shamrock comes by? Probably not. 
Probably Shamrock <laughs> doesn't come by. I know for a fact that there, or at least was, a Marriott in Uncasville, Connecticut, that the IFL would stay in all the time when we had shows there, and uh, that's the one that a where a near-drunken brawl between Don Fry and Dennis Holman almost got the entire IFL kicked out of there. So uh, I'm just saying that they know they know what the scene is going to be like down there at the Uncasville Marriott. They're not being caught by surprise here. <laughs> it's not their first rodeo. Uh, I would think if you're Shogun Hui and you lose to Corey Anderson, and then you're two and five in your last seven fights, dating all the way back to 2012. Uh, I mean, I don't know. I'm a sane person. I would say it's time to walk away, but I also know that that's not a thing that you can either bet on or like even expect. Well, I remember reading something like three years ago where he was saying how his family keeps asking him about retirement and wanting him to retire. And he sounded like he was at least considering it then. And yet here we are in 2016. They're on the undercard against Beast in 25-8. Next question from Davis McElmurray. He writes, hey, guys, I'm having a hard time getting pumped up to watch Verdum fight Stipe. Stipe. I guess that matchup is okay, but I've honestly thought both guys are a little meh. Talk me out of it? What? Question mark? What? I mean... I'm psyched for this one. I don't know about you. I'm into this. I'm psyched to see Stipe go out there and get his shot. I mean, Fab Verdum is a, is a guy that I'm still... You have it out for him because of the troll face. That's what it is, isn't it? Okay, well, let's talk briefly about the troll face, and then we can talk about the rest Here of... Here we go. Of... This This whole episode was preamble. To get to Chad Dundas's <laughs> rant on the troll face. Because we talked about the troll face a little bit before we went on the air here, before we started recording. And I brought up the point. It kind of seems like, because we've already discussed that the go horse makes the troll face too much. <laughs> well, like you thought it was over, too much well, like yeah, a long I thought it time was, ago. I thought it was too much the first time. I didn't think it was too much then. I'm, I've come around to the view. I, I can accept and admit now it's too much. At this point, I mean, it seems like he's doing it too much. Uh, he's had masks made at this point. And I brought up before we started recording, like, you can say what you want to about Fabrizio Verdum's fighting abilities, but it kind of feels like he is leaning on the troll face as his only try at marketability. Like, that's all it is. He's just like, I'm going to have this face that I make, and that will make me a marketable UFC heavyweight champion. But I, my point that I made was that the, the troll face is as good a thing as any. For one thing, it's a, it's more of a try at marketability is, than a lot of people. It is, that's attempt. true, but it is not as good as anything. <laughs> okay. For him, it's, for him, it's fitting because the extent to which Verdum is going to sell you on personality, the one adjective you would use to describe that personality is silly. He's a silly guy. He likes to have fun and not take anything too seriously. He's very lighthearted. And the troll face fits perfectly with that understanding of Fabricio Verdum's personality, um, keeping it loose. And he, he'll even keep it loose out there in the fights. That's one of the things that makes him a lot of fun uh, in more recent years. And I guess if if you're going to have that be your thing, you might as well go all in and make thousands of those masks to, to pass out. For for what he's working with, I I think that it's not a bad strategy. I hear what you're saying. And let me say for the record, I would be all in on the idea of a goofy Brazilian heavyweight champion. But it just seems like Fabrizio Verdum is a one-trick pony. Like, there's nothing else besides the face. Like... 
give me a hand buzzer now and again. <laughs> or a like whoopee a, cushion. A, a flower lapel thing that squirts water? Yeah, absolutely. Come to the post-fight press conference with a whoopee cushion for Corey Anderson's chair. How about this? He keeps signing bout agreements in invisible ink. <laughs> See, I, now we're getting somewhere. It's not all the troll face all the time. That's all I'm asking. I'm just asking, like, give me a couple of layers so I know it's not just all the troll face. Well, and the the irony of him being possibly a one-trick pony in marketing terms is that as a fighter, especially in the last couple of years, he is probably one of the most diverse heavyweights. He has he just has a lot of stuff that he can do well. He's turned into a really uh, effective kickboxer, and then he can make you – Think about, well, maybe I should get this guy to the ground. And then you remember, oh, yeah, it's Fabricio Verdum. So that's a terrible idea. He's turned into a really, really well-rounded fighter. Uh, so for him to be a one-trick pony outside the cage, it's, it is kind of a sad turn. Yeah, he's won six fights in a row, dating back to that terrible fight against Alistair Overeem, which I, that was part of the vaunted Strike Force Heavyweight Grand Prix back in those days. Uh, am I a jerk, kind of, that I'm still... Not totally buying Fabricio Verdum, number one heavyweight in the world, or the fact that maybe Verdum is the number one heavyweight in the world, but almost kind of by default? Well, I mean, if not him, then who? That's the thing, by default. That's what I just said. Yeah, but I think that's... He didn't get there on accident. Like, he has been beating up really good dudes. He beat up Travis Brown when Travis Brown's kind of at his height, and everybody was thinking that maybe he's... I'm uh, going to make a run at the title and, and beat him up all over the place. Uh, beat up Kane Velasquez, even, you know, even if it was sea level Kane showing up at, uh, you know, 7,000 feet in Mexico City to fight, whatever. He, he's fighting some tough guys and he's in his late 30s himself. So even if you want to point to those other guys and say, well, they've fallen off, I mean, he hasn't fallen off, which is you know, a testament to something he's doing, uh, right. So, The way that he has continued to improve so late in his career is one of the things that helps really sell me on Fabricio Verdum is that he has has continued to evolve uh, and gotten better and better. And I don't know. I mean, I think if he goes out there and he beats a guy like Stipe. Stipe! How do you not give him his due daps? He's the number one heavyweight in the world. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I guess. Sure. I'm I'm, I'm in that. I'm, I'm on board for that, I guess. Just not totally blown out of the water by the guy. I guess. Maybe it's the face. Maybe it's the trickle-down effect of the face. I don't know. I mean, if you look around the heavyweight division, it kind of seems like things are, are playing out almost in Verdum's favor. It seems like he will fight Stipe Miocic this weekend, where I assume Verdum is, must be the favorite. Uh, and then down the road, I mean, you can't look down the road in the heavyweight division. That's a fool's errand. But at the same time, we have what passes for a title picture right now as, as kind of stable and set in stone as we've had in a while in the, in the heavyweight title picture kind of seems like he will uh, fight Alistair Overeem next. Uh, And and it seems like if you're Verdum, it's a chance to, to avenge that last loss and, and go two and one overall against Overeem in your career. Uh, I guess we'll talk about Overeem in a little while, but I think you could make the case that you're going to get Overeem at the right time if you are Fabrizio Verdum. Yeah. You might even say you're going to get under Reem. If there, if there is a argument to be made against Fabrizio Verdum as the number one heavyweight in the world, I think it's more an argument, uh, about the nature of the heavyweight division that I think maybe subconsciously you feel like you've been burned too many times by the, the division where it seems like you're always just rolling the dice. 
and one of the points I made the Twitter mailbag where somebody was asking, you know, what does it do for Verdum, win or lose? Where do you start to put him in your list of all-time UFC heavyweights? It's not completely unreasonable to think that Verdum could be the guy to finally break the two consecutive title defense, uh, like all-time record. I mean, he if he if he defends against Stipe, fights maybe the the Alistair Overeem, maybe the winner of Cain Velasquez and Travis Brown. Those all seem like fights that he could win. And then the next thing you know, Fabricio Verdum has eclipsed the mark of all previous UFC heavyweight champions. Then you got to put your reservations about the face aside, goddammit. Yeah, and embrace that, the man. at that point you will, not only because he, he will have toppled all of the other best heavyweights in the world, but he will also, in this sunny and optimistic preview, uh, he will have triumphed over the UFC heavyweight championship curse, which if he beats Travis or Stipe Miocic this weekend and, and, uh, you know, we, we gotta put him at, at code red on high alert for the UFC heavyweight title curse if he wins this fight on Saturday, because they, that, I guess it's conceivable he could make it to the fight with Overeem, but after that, it's like motorcycle wreck time yeah. or, uh, lingering injuries force your retirement. Or lengthy contract holdout, or diverticulitis. Yeah, something's gonna happen. You're something's bad. Something bad's gonna happen. Not be the time to invite Fabricio Verdun to participate in your dune buggy race, for instance. <laughs> That's right. No seatbelts, dune buggy race. It's gonna be a great time. <laughs> uh, am I a jerk too? Because I just I do want to see him fight Cain Velasquez again. Like I know that we joke about sea level Cain and stuff like that, and I don't think you can cut Cain Velasquez any slack because he showed up in Mexico City woefully ill prepared to fight at that altitude, which there's frankly no excuse for when you are the UFC heavyweight champion. Uh, but that still, at least in my mind, place, places a slight asterisk after that win. Like, you can't take anything away from Verdum. Uh, and I always I always get mad at, at internet fans when, when they accuse you of, like, trying to undermine a dude's win. But, I mean, I don't think, any, I don't think anything could be further for the tr- from the truth, really. It's like the fact that Cain Velasquez showed up ill-prepared doesn't take away from the fact that Fabricio Verdum showed up and looked awesome. Like, yeah. Two, those two things can exist at the same time. They can. I do just want to see them fight again in, in the hopes that we would get high level Kane. Uh, even though I don't even know if we know what that is right now. Well, I mean, if, if Kane Velasquez can go out there and beat Travis Brown and then most importantly stay healthy, absolutely I'd watch that fight again. I don't think that makes you a jerk. You're, you're a jerk for different reasons. All right. You got this next one. Right? I got the next one. Oh um, man. I planned this out the right way. <laughs> From Mehmet in London. So Conor McGregor has now given up on UFC 200 and instead is spouting nonsense about a fight with Mayweather. I'll be honest, fellas, I'm getting pretty bored of him, and I'm getting bored of my non-MMA fan friends constantly asking me about him. He just got outboxed by a man who has lost three of his last six fights. Does he honestly think he'd stand a chance against Pretty Boy? Or is he just trying to squeeze as much money as he can out of his short career before people realize his bark is way worse than his bite? It might just be me, but the arrogant best fighter in the world shtick works a lot better when, you know, you don't lose to the first guy who isn't a foot shorter than you. I enjoy watching McGregor fight, and I enjoy the work he does on the mic, but do people actually buy all his shit-talking? It's entertaining, sure, but surely no one actually thinks he's as good as he says he is. Anyway, just thought I'd tee one up for you guys to chat about. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. Thanks, Mehmet. That's a good job. And then I guess we throw Patrick Fannin on the end of this, too, where he says, in a world where cats bark and the Diaz brothers teach linguistics, uh, McGregor versus Mayweather happens. Theoretical hashtag would watch, question mark? I mean, absolutely, yes. Yeah, you'd hashtag, have to watch it. Hashtag you have to watch. Yeah. Uh, but, I mean, 
Let's talk, let's talk about the idea of Conor McGregor versus Floyd Mayweather because I guess from an, an arm's length point of view, I understand why a story like this captivates so much attention, just the idea of it. But at the same time, some an enormous fucking reality dominoes would have to fall for this thing to even <laughs> be in the realm of happening. Yeah, that's why it has just felt not really worth talking about to me because it seems obvious to me what is happening here, that it's... Two guys who don't really have a whole lot going on right now on the horizon as far as like they, neither one of them, uh, like Conor McGregor, he lost that, that Diaz fight at UFC 200. People got sick of him talking about that. Um, so you got to talk about something else, right? To keep your name out there. It seems like a really obvious ploy to just keep your name in the news cycle. And it, as soon as that becomes an obvious ploy, it's no longer really that effective, at least for me, but apparently, some people, they just can't stop falling for this particular bait over and over again. Yeah. So it's, it's Ronda Rousey throwing Floyd Mayweather on the, on the Vegas Strip all over again. Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's a really bizarre, I think, that not only the mainstream media, but also maybe casual fight fans like to talk about this stuff. Uh, I mean, spoiler alert, if Conor McGregor and Floyd Mayweather fought in a boxing match, Floyd May Mayweather would win. If they fought in an MMA fight, Conor McGregor would probably win. You'd have to find a third sport to do the tiebreaker in. Racquetball. Bocce. Handball. Something like that. Shuffleboard. Maybe tabletop bar shuffleboard. Okay. I would actually watch. Hashtag would watch. <laughs> uh, I'm not going to pay 60 bucks on pay-per-view, but... You'll catch a live stream? I would catch the live stream of it. Uh, Devil's Advocate, though, you know, we, we, we scoff at these rumors primarily because... Uh, well, it's just a farcical idea, but also the UFC would uh, assumedly have to sign on for this event, especially if they were going to have it in Vegas. Uh, or Beijing. I mean, yeah, you want to do it in Beijing. Maybe you, maybe you, if you hurry, you could get away maybe without doing, doing it without the UFC. Uh, but, and we've always, the, the, the go-to line has always been that the UFC refuses to co-promote with anyone. Would the UFC co-promote on this though? I mean, just knowing that, it would it would make them stacks of cash. It would make them unbelievable piles of money. Like uh, if you're going to co-promote one event, it's this one, right? You know, unbelievable stacks of money of which Floyd Mayweather would demand an enormous chunk. And I maybe there's the, got to be some left over though. They had enough to pay Manny Pacquiao, <laughs> right? Well, and maybe one of the things that you would worry about is what if just by getting close to that kind of model, fighters realized, oh wait a minute. That's how that's how they do it over in that sport where that guy gets that big of a cut of what's going on because he is basically the whole damn show. Oh, wait a minute. We need to rethink some things on our side of the equation. I mean, you'd, you'd think that they they haven't made that connection yet. So maybe they wouldn't just because Floyd Mayweather was actually in the building and, and strapping on a pair of gloves next to them. But uh, I don't know. It, it would be. It would take the UFC acting in a completely non-UFC kind of way. That's true. And it seems like Conor McGregor is a particularly dangerous person to have that fight with uh, and, and to give an up-close and personal look at that business model because he's not going to miss that. No. That's not going to slip by him. No. And again, it, it might be um, a little more effective in your marketing push if you could do it at a time when Conor McGregor was coming off a win. Rather than off a loss. Because honestly, if 
if I'm Nate Diaz and Conor McGregor actually manages to get the UFC to, to book him a fight with Floyd Mayweather, that's when I'm going to be jumping up talking a whole bunch of shit about why I didn't get to fight, fight Floyd Mayweather. That seems like another thing I hashtag would watch. <laughs> uh, one, okay, this one from Jared Johnston who writes, Bleacher Report described it as a, quote, feel-good win, but I find Overeem's win over Arlovsky to be anything but. I don't know who wrote that, by the way. This dude is the Darth Vader of heavyweight division. I don't understand how anybody could root for this guy. Am I alone in not being able to forget his still recent pop for PEDs, followed by his rapidly deflated physique? I do hope for him to get the next shot at the title, if only for non-glass-jawed Verdum or Miocic to put him away. Am I out of my mind? Discourse, gents. Okay, I kind of... The Darth Vader of the heavyweight division. I admit I had never thought of Overeem that way until I heard him described thusly here. What do you think of that comparison? He seemed more like the Darth Vader of the heavyweight division uh, back in the days that, that he was fighting at Dynamite 2010 and, and uh, Dream 12, making a lot of stops at the Saitama Super Arena uh, back when he was knocking out Todd Duffy in 19 seconds, back when he was just destroying Brett Rogers in the first Shoving round. Shoving women in nightclubs, that yeah. kind of stuff. Yes, he seemed a lot more like Darth Vader then. Uh and maybe at this point he seems like the old sad Darth Vader at the end of uh, Return of the Jedi. Let me look upon you with mine own <laughs> eyes. Well, okay. yeah, I guess I don't feel uh, like I, it seemed back then like he was so obviously getting away with something right in front of all of our eyes and doing it with a kind of like sneering arrogance. Like he knew that we knew it and didn't care. Um, catch me if you can kind of attitude. And then he got caught uh, and he got kind of brought down back to earth. He also went through some rough times there afterwards, like in the cage, like he had that fight against Bigfoot Silva where he seemed to be winning and then also uh, getting a little arrogant in the fight and then got knocked out. Um, then he had a, a similar fight against Travis Brown where he seemed to be winning and then got knocked out. Um, and, you know, then he, he, Beat Frank Mir, got knocked out by Ben Rothwell, who then mocked his footwork in a, in a very Rothwell-esque dance. And then it seemed like maybe he had been sufficiently brought back down to earth so that it, it, it seemed possible to root for him again. And I don't know if I would describe any of his wins exactly as a feel-good moment right now. But I don't know. It seems to me like now when you see him show up and it looks like he's just he is a big dude but not just completely unbelievable physique. Um, he's still putting his, it seems like he's putting more of his experience to work rather than just going out there and bulldozing people. Like, it, it seems like he is just a mature fighter, at least in that regard. It seems a little easier to get behind Alistair Overeem for me now. Not saying that, like, I still enjoy the, the silliness of a Fabricio Verdum more than I would the, uh, self-seriousness of Alistair Overeem, but I, I, it doesn't feel like, he is as symptomatic of everything that's wrong with MMA as he felt, you know, in like 2012 or whatever. Yeah, I'm not going to come out and say I can root for the guy, but uh, I see what you're saying. And, and he does, <laughs> now that he can be taken a little bit more seriously as a human being, he does seem a little bit more relatable, I suppose. Uh, it also seems like, though, uh, he, he, you know, that there, maybe there is some, reason to suspect that he is a disagreeable person. He seemed like he wore out his welcome with the Black Zillions down there in Florida. 
uh, and then made what was probably a super smart choice and, and trekked over to Albuquerque to tra- train with uh, Greg Jackson's camp, uh, which, which seems to be going fine, but it also seems like, uh, and maybe I'm just reading too much into it, but certainly like he and Arlovsky made no bones about the fact that they didn't really like each other. And Arlovsky is a super agreeable person. And Arlovsky is a super agreeable person. Uh, and but I don't know what we're going to do. We're going to start making a list of the disagreeable no, people in MMA. You're right. That, that would be a fool's errand. I was just going to, to add on to that, that it seemed a little bit, uh, telling to me that both Greg Jackson and Mike Winklejohn were like, yeah, you know, we don't like this. It's a, it's not a great situation for our team, but we understand it's the reality, especially at the in heavyweight. When you have so many great fighters, they're all going to fight each other. But we're both totally cornering Arlovsky. But like, apparently, because they made a, a solemn vow to him when he came to the team on the heels of what four straight losses or whatever, and his old trainer had suggested to him that he retire. Uh, it seemed like Greg Jackson made a, a solemn vow to him that he would always be there for him in his fights. But also, things that make you go hmm a yeah. little bit to me, anyway. Yeah. Well, also in that Greg Jackson and and Mike Winklejohn are trying to revive BJ Penn's career, so it seems like there's reason to believe that uh, when fighters come there saying, "Help me, Greg Jackson, you're my only hope," he's not telling a whole lot of people no these days. Uh, next question this week from Curtis Bouchard, who writes, "I'm happy for Stefan Struve for his big win after a few rough years, but unfortunately, this should probably be the end of Bigfoot Silva's martial times. What do you guys think? Should be and won't." Should That's, be and won't Bigfoot Silva going out there looking like a beat poet, looking like he just came <laughs> from the jazz club. The most terrifying beat poet ever. Where he was hanging out with a bunch of hep cats and uh, catches a catches a bad one well, from Stefan Struve. The thing about that is afterwards Struve saying like, hey, we worked on that in the warm up because we knew that's how he'd start the fight. Not a good sign for you, Bigfoot Silva, if the guy can just be like, all right. Let's drill this uh, at the very beginning of the fight because we know exactly what the dude will do. And then you go out there and you do it and they catch you on it. But also when your problem is that you're getting hit in the face and falling down immediately, that's not a problem that's going to get any better if you just keep trying. Like that's We've seen this before over and over again. And you look at his recent fights – and that's pretty much all it is. It's not like he's just getting absolutely beat on uh, for a long period of time and guys are just outclassing him. It's that they're hitting him on the face and he's falling down because he can't take the punches as well as he used to. Uh, and, you know, he never had a, a ton of mobility to get out of the way in the begin with. So there's no reason to think that it's going to change. You know, you're especially at the heavyweight division, it's not like you can just find somebody who doesn't hit that hard. Uh, and slowly build your career back up, the more you keep getting hit in the face, the worse this problem is going to get. Pomaded lock of hair hanging down across his forehead, just looking like he and Danny Kay were going to do a duet dance somewhere in the middle of the picture. You'd love that. Uh, Stefan Struve gets a, gets a win over Antonio Silva. Uh, he was coming off that loss to uh, Jared Rocholt that he had at UFC 193. So he's two and one now in his last three, which sounds better than if you say he's two and three in his last five. Uh, but I think good to point out that it's a solid win for a guy who had looked like maybe his career would be over a few years ago owing to a heart defect and then, and then perhaps some struggles with anxiety after, after he tried to come back from the, from the congenital heart defect. Uh, still 28 years old, which, uh, in the heavyweight division is like being in kindergarten. But again, just like Shogun Hua, I guess you have to say 28 years old for Stefan Struve, maybe not the same 28 years old as for some of the rest of us. Yeah. Um, all right, we're ready to move on here. 
This one from Nick Lafreniere, I think. Uh, Hearing the terrible story about Jordan Parsons has brought something to my mind that I haven't heard anyone talk about. How easy could that have been John Jones' situation with his hit and run, and why have I not heard a comparison? Realistically, the same original crime was committed, but John was extremely fortunate. No one was severely injured or worse. Discuss. Now, this is obviously talking about Jordan Parsons, the Bellator fighter who recently died after... uh, being involved in a in a hit and run when he was on foot, actually I believe in a crosswalk, and a driver, from all accounts, going at a tremendous rate of speed, uh, hit him, and fled the scene, and then turned himself in days later. And apparently, this alleged driver in the hit and run has uh, a long history of uh, vehicular incidents. This one, though, being the worst one, and you know. Uh, I, I would hope it's the worst one, Jesus. <laughs> well, uh, I've done a full background check, but I'm going to assume that that's the worst one. Um, and you know, yeah, it, that that is a good point because, uh, I mean, you can make the difference that okay, he hit someone on foot as opposed to hitting someone else's car. But from everything we heard about the situation, both from witnesses and from John Jones himself, he really had no way of knowing how badly injured the person in the other car was when he made the decision to take off. Um, so there are definitely some similarities, and it does some you know a, a tragic incident like this does remind you that yeah that could have been a whole lot worse. And are we making our decisions about like you know who's who is damned and who is forgiven uh, based on the stuff that's just kind of an accident of how it played out rather than actually what you did. Right. Yeah, I feel like we did say this is obviously a a tragedy for Jordan Parsons and his family uh, and is awful, the kind of thing I just can't even really imagine having happened to either me or someone close to me. Uh, And so that, that obviously is just awful. In the John Jones case, I feel like we did talk after the hit and run incident about how lucky he was and how this could have been a lot worse and how he was probably, uh, you know, inches away from from killing someone in that accident. The judge brought it up at the at the hearing, uh, and I feel like that was one of the uh, one of the real uh, deciding factors in creating this idea that John Jones's personal life was getting more and more out of hand because he had this hit and run accident, which. Uh, at the end of all of it turned out to be relatively minor from both an injury standpoint and from a uh, legal standpoint. Uh, but at the same time, like it doesn't take much to turn that into vehicular manslaughter or vehicular homicide. Uh, and, and maybe the, the difference between Jordan Parsons case and John Jones's case is, is that when it happens to you, we say, well, you're lucky you weren't killed if if you make it through. If it happens, if John in John Jones's case, I think we say you're lucky you didn't kill someone else. Yeah, which is obviously a lot worse. That is a weird way to think of it. Thanks. Uh, next one comes from Curtis Bouchard, who writes: It's unfortunate that Dennis Seaver got injured, but I actually prefer the Cole Miller matchup for BJ Penn if he has to unretire again. It's a winnable fight for BJ against a guy from his era, but a win over BJ Penn would still be a pretty big deal for a guy like Jeremiah Cole Miller. Please discuss. You know who else is excited about this? Who? Cowboy Cerrone. Oh yeah. Yeah, he already tweeted at Cole Miller to say he's going to spend every minute in the gym with BJ Penn, coaching him up to kick Cole Miller's ass, and ass was in all caps. <laughs> Oh, wow. Yeah. So there you go. Oh, okay. Run, tell that on the party cast. 
Uh, are we really saying that uh, Cole Miller is of BJ Penn's era? I raised my eyebrows as well. I, I, I mean, I don't know, man. I've, I'm not looking at Cole Miller's record right now, but I would also squint a little bit at the part about this being a winnable fight for BJ Penn. I mean, winnable, uh, but definitely not as likely to win as Dennis Seaver was. But I agree. I like this fight better for that reason. It seemed more competitive, and if hey, if the guy's going to come out of retirement and get back in there it should be against in a legit fight um although this one also does not seem like okay hey it's bj penn so he has to fight you know somebody at the top of uh one of the divisions he's known to compete in and absolutely get crushed again because that is sad uh but no i do think that this is a a more interesting fight um for just style reasons and where they both stand in the division i enjoy watching cole miller fight a lot i think that uh Maybe it's just the jujitsu homer in me, but uh, I like his style. I like seeing him fight. Um, so, yeah, I'm all for this one. And knowing that Cowboy Cerrone is out there typing ass in all caps and he's fired up about it, gives me another little dimension. Uh, shout out also to Curtis Bouchard for alerting us to the fact that Cole Miller's given name is Jeremiah. Yeah, I'd go by Cole, too. Jeremiah Cole Miller. We had a conversation behind the scenes the other day about Rose Nama Yunus. And about how and we assume it must be a recent edit to her Wikipedia page because we can't figure out how we wouldn't have noticed sooner that her middle name is Gertrude. How would that escape us? Now, see, that's the kind of thing that makes me wonder if Wikipedia editors are out there planting bombs for us. <laughs> well, if so, then they, they're they fairly subtle about it and they know us really well. So they deserve, they deserve success here. Um... I'm going to go with this one from Jared McKenzie. The UFC media and fans have been spoiled with McGregor's easy quotes and larger-than-life personality, but I think we easily forget how horrible and boring most interviews, not just in this sport but in all others, tend to be. My question then, how much is the interviewer at fault for boring interviews, and is there anything that you think separates MMA from, say, the NFL or NHL when it comes to quality interviews? I think this is an interesting question because I also think that when you watch interviews in other sports um you're reminded that oh yeah there's especially man hockey is one of the worst hockey players seem to give the worst interviews or maybe that's because because i've only recently got into watching hockey but you see them and they'll do interviews with them like on the ice right before the game and right after the game and you're just like holy shit this is boring why are you even wasting time talking to this guy but one of the big differences um i think is that they do not have to be interesting in interviews. It doesn't really affect anything for them. They have to be good players because the their system of compensation is so much different. They play for teams run by individual owners who are all looking to get an advantage over one another and please their home fans by winning. That is what their fans care about, way more than having interesting guys who say interesting shit on the team. They need to win. Uh, and... That's really all they care about. And in MMA, it is completely different. If you are an interesting person who people want to watch, then they will put you in a situation where you will be more likely to win. Uh, so there are just completely different motivations that go into it. Um, but yeah, there's sometimes when the interviewer can absolutely be responsible for a boring interview. Uh, yeah, not only do team sport athletes and athletes in more established sports that play by different economic realities not have to say anything interesting, but they are specifically coached not to like, not only it's, it's not an accident really in, in large part that, that 
mainstream team sport athletes are uh, boring by and large. And I think most of that, well, I think it's actually a really interesting question. I feel like we could talk about it for a long time. Some of it in some sports comes because I think they start to be trained to do that in college. Uh, and some of it happens because there's so much money at risk and at stake for everyone that uh, they they sort of know, either are told early on or figured out for themselves that uh, it's better for them to just be completely vanilla in every interview that they ever do and thereby preserve and extend not only the the earning potential of the team but their own personal earning potential for as long as they as long as they possibly can uh in my previous capacity as a uh as a newspaper reporter i always found the worst across the board interviews were minor league baseball players wow because really? they well there there's always you know there's always an exception to the rule but by and large if you're a minor league baseball player you combine the total terrifiedness of the college athlete with being kind of patently uninteresting. Like if you're a dude who signed with a major league team out of high school and you were a baseball pitcher in high school and you went to, to school in some tiny town in Georgia and when you're 15 or 18 you get shipped off to play minor league ball somewhere, you don't have a lot else to talk about than pitching and what video games you like. That's kind of the extent of your of your world experience. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I think when you do a lot of interviews, you can kind of notice like there are ways that where you can see interviewers making it a boring interview or at least not doing anything to really help themselves out. Like if you're sitting there asking a bunch of yes or no questions, then you're lending yourself to a bunch of yes or no answers. Uh, but I definitely know that I've done interviews in the past with fighters where I can tell especially when you have to listen back to it later and transcribe it uh, and you are forced to listen to yourself asking these questions. And sometimes I've noticed, well, I didn't do a great job there with that one, but that guy really made the most out of it. Uh, and somebody who I remember him doing that a lot was Kenny Florian when when he was an active fighter and I interviewed him a, a handful of times and he was always really good at – and I've seen him do it in other interviews with other people are interviewing him. Whatever you give him, he'll try to make something out of it, even if the question is completely uninteresting, even if it's not even really a question. It's just one of those things that's just a statement where your voice goes up at the end. Uh, he will take it and and give you something out of it. And that seems like a skill and a, and a talent that a lot of people don't appreciate. Yeah, definitely, for sure. Um, let's also say it honestly is really hard to come up with an interview and obtain interesting stuff when you are practicing your trade within the bounds of uh, what the organization wants to control, wants you to do, right? So the UFC prior to big events, uh, most of their interviews are done in 10-minute blocks. Yeah, which with, sucks. With various reporters. So and they'll even do the 10-minute block when they called me with Fabrizio Verdum like last week. And they're like, you have 10 minutes, but we're going to do it via translator. And that's going to take up half the time is me saying one thing to the translator, her saying it to Verdum, him saying it back to her, her saying it back to me. But yeah. So, I mean, if then say what they do is they have the fighter sit down all morning or all day, depending on how the interest in that particular fighter and just do one 10 minute interview after another. And like, as a reporter, if you do a lot of those, 
I think, I feel like, at least me personally, you eventually get to the point where you're just like, well, shit, what am I going to ask this person? Yeah. Like, what can I possibly ask this person to get them to give me an answer that they, that is A, interesting and B, that they're not just giving every single other reporter? Because, you know, when, when you do that style of interview, what you'd get afterward are 15 stories that are all the same. Fighter X plans to do ABC to Fighter Y in their fight on Saturday. Uh, and I, that's certainly by design by the people that, that set up those interviews. Uh, so, I mean, I feel like personally, I eventually got to the point where I was just like, there's nothing I can do. Like, there's no question that I can ask that is germane to the situation that this person is not just going to have like an answer for. And it's kind of weird when you've been in the business long enough that you, so you can come up with the question and know what the answer is going to be and then either decide to either keep or discard that question. Cause a lot of times you'll think of, Oh, I could ask this person this, but then you think, but if I do, they're just going to say this. Yeah. Well, and that's one of the things I used to think all the time when people would say, uh, especially with back when Dana White was still around answering our questions and people would say, why don't you ask him about this? And you'd say, because we have, uh, you know, two years ago, and like we've done this over and over again, and we know what the answer is going to be, uh, and there's no reason to just keep going through it over and over and over again. Uh, I also think of it when you know Conor McGregor complains, like, "Hey, why do I have to do the Tom and Susie morning show and all, go around to all these different media outlets, and they're all going to ask the same questions?" And like, yeah, of course they're all going to ask the same questions. There's only that many relevant questions for them to ask you the the only way for them to ask you completely new questions based on uh, after you've done so many different interviews for so long is for them to ask you questions that are just dumb and just have nothing to do with you or what you're doing or why you're even doing this interview like they, you just run out of questions there's the when we're just talking about professional fighting and the life of a professional fighter there just are not infinite questions to ask um before we we leave one thing I wanted to point out here, uh, a question from the Jesse White Deer, and he asks, so WSOF is pulling some WWE shit by booking a fight between adoptive brothers Karos and Ben Fodor, a la Owen versus Bret Hart. So Chad and Ben, what's your opinion on this fight? Is it a clever ploy by Ray Sifo and company to boost their audience, or just a fight between two guys who happen to be brothers? Does the loser have to do the winner's chores for a week? Please educate us, gentlemen. To this, I would add an addendum. This fight is in Everett, Washington on July 30th. Would make for a nice summer road trip for a couple of CME guys to load their families up into a couple of cars, drive eight hours to the outskirts of Seattle, and watch the WSOF shit show for themselves. <laughs> yeah, when I saw that you originally tweeted that this fight was only eight hours from our home, and my first question was, eight hours in which direction? That is a valid question. Because if you live where we live, eight hours to the west is about the only viable direction <laughs> under that time frame. Uh, but yeah, man, I'm down. Let's do it. We got people out there, Seattle area. Yeah. Let's... let's uh, Let's load up all of our children. You know and, they uh, legalized the marijuana out there, too. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, you you will have fun with that, you hippie, <laughs> and I will drive the car. Okay. You will Actually, you will drive your own car. We will go in separate cars because the sheer luggage and accoutrement of having to move two children will, is about the capacity of a, of, a, of a standard automobile. Yeah. We could not put all four of our children in a normal car. And I'm still banking on my daughter believing that the Dramamine I give her for long car trips is a special treat she gets to have called car candy. 
uh, and is still enthusiastic about eating it because otherwise she's wow. going to throw up all over is herself. Is that a true story? That's a true story. Jesus Christ. Putting it on the calendar right now, Chad, July 30th, summer getaway. Woo, the CME goes on the road. I didn't know I was doing this podcast with Avon Barksdale you sitting are. over there <laughs> pushing that candy to the children. Jesus. You know, you give them just a little taste for free, then they keep coming back. All right, that's going to do it for this week's late but better late than never episode of the co-main event podcast. We'll be back in like three days. If all things work out, like you're going on vacation starting next week. That's right. Jesus. This is a, this is a tough run for us. Uh, are we going to be able to record a show on Monday? It depends on your time constraints, I guess. Since you think you got shit to do. Well, if we, if we get it done on the day that it's supposed to happen, I can probably make it happen. Monday morning, Monday morning, 5.00 AM. I'll be here. <laughs> all right. With the coffee hot. Uh, so stay tuned for that. We'll tell you everything that went down this weekend at UFC 198. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. And so if it's brother versus brother, I think we each got to choose a brother. Yeah, I want the uh, one that's not the superhero. Oh, good, because I want the superhero. You want the superhero? That's right. Which one is which? Ben Fodor is the superhero, right? Yes. Jesus Jones. Carlos Fodor.